0: Well, I hope you are as eager as I am this week to continue our studying Revelation. It's been four weeks since uh, I finished the last chapter. And of course, uh, just by way of brief review, the whole series I've entitled The Vindication of the Lord and His People. The Vindication. To vindicate someone, remember is to show that person to be in the right, on the right side, believing the right story, behaving in the right way, having a right hope. I was thinking this week vindication is illustrated in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is hated by his older brothers when he tells them about the dreams that he's having, right? And in the second dream especially, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars are bowing down to him. And he believed that it was a prophecy from God that one day his parents and his brothers would bow down and worship him. Now, granted, if you have 10 older brothers and you're having dreams like that, I think it's best to keep your mouth shut, you know? If, if nothing else, I mean, they're never going to let you live that down. But even Joseph's father, Jacob, was like, that's nonsense. And his brothers hated him all the more. And you know what they did to him? They found an occasion to throw Joseph into a pit. And then some Midian traders came along and they sold him. And, and, and the Midian traders took Joseph down to Egypt and sold him into slavery. And Joseph found himself as a slave in Potiphar's house in Egypt and there he was mistrusted again. He was falsely accused of forcing himself on Potiphar's wife and he was thrown into prison. And the whole time, Joseph had done nothing wrong. In fact, he's one of the few characters in Scripture that unless you get really into the fine detail of maybe he was sinning when he was a little boy, I've heard some people try to argue that, you really can't find anything explicit that it says about Joseph where he ever did anything wrong. But God vindicated him. God raised him up from prison prison, through an opportunity to impress Pharaoh of Egypt, and Joseph was placed in the position of the second highest in command in Egypt. They are the empire of the world at that time. The second highest in command. Who would have ever thought And his brothers came seeking grain in time of famine and Joseph's brothers and later his father did exactly what that dream said they would do. They bowed themselves before him. That's vindication. God had not abandoned Joseph. He raised up this righteous young man and seated him in a position where he could demonstrate that he had been in the right all along. I don't know if you have ever been falsely accused or misunderstood or doubted. But later the truth came out and everyone knew that you had been right all along. Isn't vindication a wonderful thing? But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you have to realize that your vindication, your ultimate vindication is your only hope. The world may laugh at you, Satan may accuse you. That's the kind of thing he does. You may face the painful evidence of your own fallenness or your own shortcomings. You may go through trials clinging to God's promises while others tell you that's not real. Your religion is just being used as a crutch, a meaningless prop to help you cope with your situation. Putting your all on the altar That's just ridiculous. I mean, who would give up all the things they have for some empty promise? But the book of Revelation, the crowning book of the Bible, is God's assurance to struggling, doubting, persecuted people that their faith is not in vain, that God will ultimately rescue us in Christ, that we are on the winning side. That if we will cling to God in faith and obedience, we will conquer with Christ and through Christ. That's the message of Revelation. And we've probed this theme of vindication all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 11. We've seen the Lord's promises of vindication to those who conquer in chapters 1 through 3. And then we've seen the judgment that God is going to bring upon the world while exalting the righteous... In a time period that the Bible refers to as the tribulation period, the climaxes with the Lord's coming to reign upon the earth, when everyone will know once and for all that what we believe is real, that we are in the right. And in our last time of studying Revelation, we came to the end of chapter 11 where the seventh angel blew the seventh trumpet and the announcement was made, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And in the flow of the timeline in Revelation, once this announcement is made, the final intense judgments will be poured out upon the earth. And while the enemies of God are reeling in those judgments, the Lord will break through the sky on a white horse, Revelation 19 followed by his people on white horses and conquer all who are against them. And then the Lord will establish his throne and we will reign with him. That's what Revelation tells us. But as you've already noticed, the book of Revelation likes to press the pause button on the action. Has this ever happened to you? In your house maybe when you're watching a movie with someone and the action is building to the climax and you're really into it and 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 it's about to unravel everything that's happening and 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 you're in suspense and all of a sudden it, it pauses and you look over and the person you're watching with says, I'm going to go make some popcorn, you know, or, uh, you know, I'm going to go grab a drink or something and uh, get something. In the Do you want something? And you're like, Ugh! you know, why did you stop it there? Don't talk. I, w- I want to see this. And if you're really into the book of Revelation, you're reading it. The announcement of Christ's coming is there and you're ready for it to happen. And there's a pause. And this is kind of what's happening here in the text. The announcement has been made for Christ's return, and there's going to be a four chapter pause in the action, just to give me more to preach about. And uh, this, however, is a divine purposeful pause in order to give us background, this is important, background that helps us to fully appreciate what God is doing here in his coming. And right after the announcement is made for Christ to return, just as the judgments are about to be poured out and he appears in the sky, our attention is is, is diverted here with two main themes. The first theme, we will get a glimpse of the actual war of Satan upon believers during this tribulation period and how believers are going to be vindicated. And that's why if you look at the screen, I've entitled this sermon this morning or the beginning of this sermon, The Feudal War of the Devil. It's about Satan's war against us and against the God of heaven. That's going to take us all the way through chapter 14, verse 5. That's the whole section is about that, as we'll see. The rest of chapter 14 through 15, in those chapters, we'll discover the second main theme of this pause, which is the nature of the final judgment that he is pouring out right before the Lord's turn. return. We will concern ourselves with that when the time comes. So there's a lot to cover in this section, chapters 12 through the beginning of chapter 14. But in the large text here that we have in front of us, we really have come to the heart of the matter. In Revelation, what we are about to read in these verses is about the war that already exists between Satan and the Son of God. And here, Satan's final battle plans come into focus. It's a futile war for him. He's not going to win, but he gets more and more desperate every time his attempt is defeated. And we must be aware of his presence and his intentions. Do you ever feel discouraged or hopeless about the sin and the falsehood that is rampant in the world? Do you ever ever watch the news lately and just start feeling that pressure? Can you sense the attack of our greatest enemy even in your own life as you struggle to live for God and be a light to the world? If so, this section of scripture should greatly encourage you because what we see here is Satan's frightening, yet futile and desperate attempts to defeat the plan of God to redeem the world for his glory and to defeat God's chosen ones. And yet, even in the end, his attacks come to nothing and God's people stand rejoicing in their God Forever. So I want to begin by reading this entire section, chapter 12 and 13 and chapter 14 through verse 5. Before we do that, I want to show you here what's ahead so you can appreciate sort of what's, what, what you're reading. This, what I'm showing you here, is an outline of what we're about to read. First, we will see in chapter 12 the attack of Satan against the Lord himself. In verses 1 through 6, it's revealed by John that Satan tries to destroy the incarnate Son of God himself. And then, having failed in that attempt, Satan is planning an all-out war on heaven itself, something I think is going to happen during the tribulation period. It's an attempt to overthrow the throne of God. And when that fails, he is going to go after God's chosen people, Israel. And when that fails, he is going to turn his wrath against any who have trusted in Israel's king, the remnant of believers in the tribulation period, who are represented by the 144,000. And this attack against believers will come in the form of two beasts who will exercise power and authority on the earth because of the authority given to them by this dragon, Satan. And finally, we find these believers in chapter 14 standing on the other side, cleansed at rest rejoicing in their victory over the devil. That's what we're about to read here. So let's start, and we'll get our minds around this, starting in chapter 12, verse 1, reading this entire section. I'll have the words up here on the screen, but you might want to just follow along in your Bible this morning. Revelation 12. This is Satan's attempt to destroy Christ. John says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems." his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Well, we know who that person is, right? But her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, which is a three and a half year period. Next, at some point in the tribulation, and I'll explain that next week, uh, Satan makes a desperate attempt to take over heaven itself. And we find that starting in verse 7, "...now war arose in heaven." Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a voice, a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on the earth, or dwell dwell in them. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. I think John is saying here that Satan used to have some measure of freedom to move about in heaven, and this is a time when he's the accuser of the brethren. We remember in Job one, for instance, when Satan approaches the throne of God. But after his attempted coup d'etat, he is cast from heaven and confined to conduct his operations only upon the earth. And woe to anyone who is the object of his wrath! He is the defeated but bitter, vengeful enemy who will do anything to get back at God after this. And the first thing he does is turn his wrath on the nation of Israel. Verse 13, when the dragon saw he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. What we'll see in a moment, the woman represents Israel. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time And times and half a time. That's three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who was that? on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And what he is doing is calling forth a beast from the sea and giving to that beast a measure of his power. And so verse 1 of 13 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled As they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken Captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Next, we meet beast number two. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast And finally, we see the end of those who stood firm during all this time for the Lord, rejoicing in victory before the throne. And I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. That is the text. In front of us now. I never get through one text. Whenever you know, I I always like spread it out before several messages. But you can forgive me this time, okay, for not taking everything in one sermon. We're taking this large section because this is the this is this is what uh, this this section is gelled together. It's held together by this one theme of the attack of Satan and his war that he is making is a feudal war. And as you can see, these chapters represent not only the big picture of Satan's war against the Lord and his people, they cover some of the major sections in Revelation that people are very curious about. For example, what about these beasts? What about the mark of the beasts? And we'll explain those things when we come to them in the text. In our time remaining this morning, however, I want to take a closer look at just this first section in chapter 12, the devil's futile attempt to destroy the incarnate Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus. Let's unpack what it says here in these first few verses of Revelation chapter 12. John starts by saying, And a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, what we read about in Revelation are real events that are going to happen on the earth, but sometimes they are figuratively explained. Prophecy is known for using figures of speech, symbolic language. But here, the symbolic language is made obvious because John himself calls what he is seeing a sign. That means it's a symbol pointing us to something else. What we discover is that this vignette, this this, uh, drama being played out, this sign represents something that happened in the life of Jesus Christ when he came to earth. What is this sign? Well, there are three main characters in this drama. There's a woman, there's a dragon, and there's a male child. In verse 1, it says, A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. That actually reminds us of some of the imagery in Joseph's dream that I mentioned, doesn't it? Thus, the 12 stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And notice the stars are presented in a crown that she wears on her head. The whole image is about the regal glory of Israel. She's clothed with the sun, which in the Bible is an image of majesty. Even, even God is, is said to be clothed with light. And the moon under her feet acts as a footstool for her throne. This is Israel as she is, should have been, the, the, the princess of God, the bride of God in the Old Testament, the chosen, fitting, beautiful bride of Yahweh, who would bring forth her king, the Lord Jesus. So John says in this sign, verse 2, she was pregnant, literally she was having in the womb. And she was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. So the majestic woman with the crown of 12 stars representing the nation of Israel is in active labor about to bring forth a child, but verse 3 says another sign appeared in heaven, something pointing to something else. Behold, a great dragon, a drachon in the Greek, a great serpent, often associated in the ancient world with demonic power. We don't have to wonder what this dragon is. Down in verse 9, John says what the dragon is. The great dragon was thrown down he says that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world so this dragon is satan himself and notice how he styles himself with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems i really like how grant osborne explains these seven heads and the seven diadems. He says that the seven heads with the seven crowns is Satan's way of claiming to be the perfect king of the earth. Osborne refers to it as the dragon's pretension to sovereignty over the earth because he's not really the one in charge. Do you know who also wears diadems on his head? Revelation 19. Verse 12, when the Lord Jesus returns, it says on his head were many diadems. Osborne says that the dragon's seven diadems are a great imitation of the true crowns of Christ. At the same time, the ten horns represent rulers on the earth or earthly authorities whom Satan controls through whom he wields his influence. And we know this because when we read the book of Daniel, which has strong parallels with Revelation, as we've already seen in this series, Daniel uses the same imagery of the horns to refer to political figures in the earth. So verse 4 says that this, this dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Many commentators think that this must refer to the angels who fell with Satan, who... Uh, rebelled with satan against god and if that's true satan has a mighty host of fallen angels at his disposal indeed verse four the second part of it says the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it this is an intense verb in the greek language the dragon wants to completely destroy wants to annihilate this child So there is a major tension in the action here as the mother gives birth. I mean, it's an evocative picture, isn't it? This woman in active labor going through this pain of childbirth, all of the emotion and all of the angst and this uh, seven-headed dragon lurking yards away waiting for the opportunity to eat her newborn child alive. But watch what happens. Verse 5, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child is caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, the woman, Israel, fleeing into the wilderness, that takes place during the tribulation period, and that is why it says 1260 days. That's three and a half years or half of the seven-year tribulation period. We, we see the three and a half years referred to often in Revelation. And we also know it's during the tribulation period because down in verse 14, we will pick up the story of the woman fleeing into the wilderness to escape the dragon. So I'm not going to talk about that right now, this morning. We'll pick up that story a little bit later in the text. Right now, our focus is on verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is the description of the glorious returning Christ in Revelation 19, 15. So out of Israel, particularly through the Virgin Mary, God brought forth his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, while the great dragon, Satan, is looking, hoping to utterly destroy him. And it says here that the child is caught up to God and to his throne. Now, the sign or the vision here, jumps to the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's finished and he's caught up. He's ascended to God the Father where he uh, has died for our sins and risen again and goes to the right hand of the Father in great power. But as you know, there's a lot more happening from Jesus' birth all the way through his ministry, through his death and resurrection before his ascension. The emphasis here in the text is on the fact that this evil dragon is seeking to destroy Jesus Christ, but he was never able to. And before he could get to him, he is ascended in glorious power to the throne. We see this attack in the birth narrative in Matthew's gospel. When Herod tries to kill Jesus by slaughtering all of the male children, two years old and younger, perhaps Herod is one of the dragon's horns. I have no idea. But the dragon was not trying to destroy Jesus, only in his infancy. The attack on Jesus' life, the attempt to thwart the father's plan for his son continued throughout Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 13, Herod's son, uh, King Herod Antipas, is looking to kill Jesus. And several times in the Gospels, we read that the scribes and the Pharisees are looking for an opportunity to kill him, especially when Jesus does something nobody can explain like raising Lazarus from the dead. But the greatest opportunity to do away with the Son of God undoubtedly came at the cross where Satan and all of his followers rushed on Jesus to devour him thinking they had finally won. And what does Paul say in Colossians 2.15? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And Ephesians 4.8, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. The, the, the image of victory. So when the dragon came to devour him, the father snatched him away in victorious resurrection, ultimately to ascend to his throne. And through that cross work and resurrection, Satan was defeated. So now he is a desperate enemy, striking out against the Lord and his people, but knowing that he can never conquer them. So when we meet Satan in the book of Revelation, he is already a defeated foe. His efforts of war are futile. He's desperate. He's dangerous. He is insane with hatred and will do anything he can to destroy the plan of God and the people of God. And we need to be aware of that. But we also need to remember he is a defeated enemy. Now, we haven't waited far into this text. But that's what's going on here in the first few verses. And I want to conclude our time this morning by pointing out some lessons that we can take away already from what we have seen here. And these brief observations are about Satan's rage that we see here. Here's the first one. Satan hates the incarnate Son of God. He hates it. He hates the God-man. The Word that became flesh. Because Jesus is the woman's seed that was promised right after Satan, the the dragon in the garden, the, the serpent in the garden, deceived Eve into sinning. And God said to Satan, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's not a mistake that the sign in heaven is of a woman giving birth to this child who will rule all nations. The enmity between Satan and the woman is evident in Revelation 12 because the devil knows this is the one who is going to crush him. If he can only stop it from happening, but he cannot His attempts are futile, and he hates him. But not only does Satan hate the incarnate Son of God, this is really important. Satan hates you who follow the incarnate Son of God. You who belong to him, who have placed your faith in him, who now desire to live like him. Think about it for a second, okay? The very idea of being a Christian, a Christ-like one, a follower, a disciple of Jesus, living out the life of Jesus Christ. This infuriates him. Jesus said to Simon in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Many of us know that verse. Did you know that the you in, those, in that verse both times is actually a, a plural you? Greek has singular and plural yous. English, we just get one you. and We have to figure it out by the context. It's helpful in Greek to know that it's a plural. Literally, he's saying Satan has demanded to have all of you disciples, that he might sift all of you as wheat. Satan hates every one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus also said to his disciples in John 15 If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And Satan is the God of this world. And we can also see Satan's hatred in the way that he has power to the beast in chapter 13, to make war on the saints and to conquer them in the way the beast blasphemes the name of God, the God that we claim to love. We have to be aware, Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy our homes. He wants to destroy our marriages. He wants to destroy us personally. He hates us because we follow Christ. He wants to keep us discouraged. He would love for us to doubt our salvation. He loves it when we give into the flesh, when we begin to complain, when we begin to be in discontent, when we're not living in harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But when you say, I belong to Jesus Christ, and I am going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, then beware. You now have a target on yourself. And we are living now in a time when all you have to do is to declare yourself faithful to God's word and what God's word says about specific truths in fact and you will be targeted. All you have to do is read the Bible and say you believe that and you're a target. You're marginalized, you're canceled. There shouldn't be any surprise that you should be targeted in this world because of the God of the world. He hates you. And I think that many of you would say, you know, it wasn't until I really started living for the Lord when I really determined to be devoted to Him that trouble started happening in my life. Anybody have that testimony here this morning? Some of that is the Lord Himself. He stretches us and grows us so that we we trust Him more. But other is due to the fact that the devil and all his forces are set against you he is waiting he is waiting for you to live incarnationally to flesh out the lord jesus christ to bring christ alive into the world again through your actions and your attitudes and he is poised to devour you for it but that leads me to a third and final observation you also have been caught away from satan in christ because what does the apostle paul teach us we who have died with Christ were buried with Christ and we've risen with Christ and now we live with Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2 5 through 6 says that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only did the father catch the son away from the clutches of Satan, but because he has placed us in Christ, he has also snatched us away from the clutches of Satan. Satan cannot touch us. He can kill our bodies, but our soul belongs to Jesus Christ for his glory. We have nothing to fear. So let's Live for our Savior, Jesus Christ, with confidence. Let's live incarnationally the life that Christ would live. And let's make the devil really mad with our Christ-like lives and our witness. Let's infuriate him even more to the glory of Christ, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for low his doom is sure. And as we come nearer to that doom, it is not time for us to shrink back from living for Christ, but to lift him up all the more to the glory of God. Father,